0: I'm Lead Pastor Noel Peekress, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church Podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. Anyone noticed more rainbows recently? Noticed uh, some flags? Noticed some controversy in the news? Some corporations? Um corporations, finding out what most people think, I guess. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's Pride Month, isn't it? June is, is Pride Month. Yeah, it's my sermon now, Alice. It's my sermon. Come on now. Sister Alice about to get out of her seat. Love you, Alice. We love you. Yeah, I don't know if any of you guys have followed the news. Uh, I'm a baseball fan, Dodger fan. And uh, the Dodgers have done some waffling in the last month, right? Uh, the, the, the Dodgers were not immune from, from playing this game. You guys, uh, maybe, if, if you're following the story that the Dodgers have this LGBTQ plus pride night, like many sports franchises uh, do. And um, one of the groups that they invited to this night is called the Sisters of perpetual indulgence, and uh, they're they're basically a trans group who uh, is like a parody group that mocks, does dances that that mock Catholics. Uh, and uh, you know, as, as I was following this story, because they, basically they invited the group, then they uninvited the group, and then they got backlash, so they invited the group again. And uh, as I was following this story, you know, the thing that really stood out to me was the name of the group, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And I thought to myself, well, well, there's a change. At least we've got some honesty here. Because that's what's going on, isn't it? There's this culture of perpetual indulgence. And I just wanted to declare, you know, as as we look at this, I'm going to talk a little bit about the cultural moment that we're in today. And I I think that it does sync up. We've been talking about divorce and marriage. Mostly Jesus talked about marriage when he was teaching about divorce. He talked about God's good design for sexuality. And so it just so happens that we're kind of in this spot. I just felt like there was some meat on the bone. Some of you remember saying that really weird word, eunuchs? Uh, Sorry, parents, if you had to explain to your 11-year-old what a eunuch is. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's, it's in the Bible. But more, more than I just want to focus on the movement itself, I, I think it was, it's important to start uh, at the heart of it and just the value behind the movement. I mean, it just kind of like, it just like really like, man, just showed up right, right in my face, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. I mean, isn't this the culture that we're swimming in, the culture that says, who are you to tell me what I can do with my life? Who are you to tell me when it's time to stop? Who are you to tell me where the boundary lines lay? And I don't think that it's just the LGBTQIA+, what, there's, and just get ready for it. That acronym's going to get longer and longer and longer because the indulgence is perpetual. But I don't think it's just the LGBTQ movement that embraces this ethos. There's actually been a version of this alive and well in mainstream uh, American culture for decades. We call this expressive individualism. This idea that the you do you idea. And uh, if you guys want a good book, um, I'm not very smart, but I read smart people stuff. And this is a book called The Strange New World by Carl R. Truman. Uh, There's a bigger book for really actual smart people a bigger version of this. My friend who's a PhD actually read that book, but I read this one. This is the PE teacher version <laughs> right here. But I, I recommend it, if, especially, you know, parents as you're trying to navigate this culture with your kids. This is a good, uh, it's a really great book that tells us how we got to this place and the underlying values that are, that are expressed in this culture. But, but you've, this, this idea of expressive individualism, I, I got that title from this book. Um, That's what Carl R. Truman uh, calls it. It's this idea that you do you, you know the uh, follow your heart, follow your truth, wherever it takes you, or how about this? What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. This is the cultural ethos that we're swimming in, and it's based on three premises. The the first premise is that a person's true self is located in their feelings. And your feelings matter, right? Your feelings do matter. And we've probably grown a bit as a culture in that regard. Your feelings do matter. Your feelings are legit, right? But when when our truth is found in our feelings, then if you feel like a female, well, you are a female, regardless of what a female actually is. If you feel attracted to the same sex, well, that's okay because that's who you are. That's how you feel. The second highest goal of this ethos is to, is to express yourself. I'm sorry, the, the second point is that the, the highest goal of this ethos is to express yourself, be true to yourself. Do you notice how there's some truth wrapped up in this lie? This is always how Satan moves, wrapping just enough truth to make it palatable. What did you, what did you take your pills with when you were a kid? We got some applesauce people in the house maybe a hot dog. You get what I'm saying? This is how Satan works. He wraps his lies inside just a little bit of truth. So the the highest goal of uh, expressive individualism is just to express yourself and to be yourself. So who's the ultimate authority in this ethos? You are. Yourself. The self is the ultimate authority. This is, again, these are the values that's driving the cultural moment that we're in. And if we're honest, it's not just the LGBTQ community that has swallowed these values. We swim in some of these values ourselves. The ultimate authority is you. It's not tradition, it's not religion, it's not custom, not government, not family, not even biology is the highest authority. It's just the inner you and however you feel you ought to be. Salvation in this worldview comes not from Jesus, but through self-expression. Just be you. This is the way to come alive, to be the best version of yourself. You've heard all the terms that I'm using. Maybe you've even used some of them. Salvation comes through self-expression. Self-denial is actually unthinkable to deny your true self is unthinkable according to this worldview. And and, and get this, even more, anyone who demands you deny yourself is a bigot. Anyone who comes to you and says, no, you can't express yourself this way, is actually hateful. I don't know if anyone, you know, we live in a kind of Bible Beltish, small town, rural America. In a lot of ways, we're kind of protected. Uh, This movement is slow to come our direction, but you know what I'm talking about. You see it in the media, and some of you even have workplaces where you've experienced these ideas. But listen, you guys, this, this perpetual indulgence, this, this uh, right to personal happiness is gonna lead to destruction. It's already leading to destruction. And no human institution has seen or felt this destruction so clearly as a family. And I think Jesus' teaching today has something to say to us about it. So here we are in, in Matthew 19. If you're new to us, we've been, we started this church about, I don't know, 19 months ago, maybe 18. That's hard math for me. We started in Matthew 1, and we've just been trekking through uh, each week. And so here we are in Matthew 19, and we've been uh, learning about Jesus' teachings on marriage and divorce And we come to this passage that teaches us about celibacy, which I think is a form of self-denial. And Jesus is moving, like literally in this story, Jesus is moving from Galilee towards Jerusalem. What's going to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem? What's he heading towards? He's already told us twice in this gospel. The Son of Man is going to die at the hands of the religious leaders. Jesus is about to take up his cross and pay the price that we should have paid, or the price that we owed for our sin. And he's not only doing it himself, but he says that whoever wants to follow me must also take up their cross. Self-denial. This is a little bit different than the you do you. Your truth is true if it's true for you, culture that we're swimming in. See, our culture of expressive individualism says that you should do what feels right to you. You should believe what's true to you. You should not tell anyone else what to believe or what's true. In fact, the the, the world that we're swimming in considers our Christian values, the values of Scripture, to be homophobic, transphobic, bigoted, hateful. I keep waiting for our TikTok account to get hammered for like hate speech. Why? Because we're preaching the Bible. The Bible is considered hate speech in this culture. So in these three verses that we've landed at today, I'd like to to show you that self-denial is a kind of eunuchry. So if you know what the word, uh, what it means to be a eunuch, this is like a castrated male, right? And and I think Jesus uh, uses this idea to not just be literal, but kind of figurative, right? To describe someone who maybe has been born with some sort of sexual variation, Um, someone who's been harmed by others? Did you know they would make eunuchs of men who served in the palace courts? You got to have somebody to guard the king's harem, and you need to make sure that he's castrated. So this is one use of, of eunuchs in Jesus' day, but Jesus acknowledges that some people are born with some sort of sexual variation. And then there's people who have, who have gone through some sort of trauma, and I think this trauma could apply not just to uh, like the, the castrated men, but also people, can you think of someone in our society who's experienced some sort of trauma that's messing with their sexuality and their ability to express themselves in a godly way? So when you, th- when you read this story and you, you see the eunuch, I want you to think of self-denial because I think that's what... Jesus is getting at. It's this idea that to live without the fulfillment of sexual desires is really hard. Even if it means uh, denying one's own desire, this is what God, this is what Jesus is calling us towards. Towards the appropriate self-denial, if that's what it means, to follow his ways. Now, you got to understand culturally, in the Jewish culture, marriage was nearly mandatory. They would have read the creation mandate in Genesis uh, be fruitful and multiply. You know that that mandate. You've probably heard that phrase before. They would have taken that as a command. So Jews thought that marriage was mandatory. So the celibate life was not deemed very highly uh, in, in Jewish culture. Okay, And it would have been rare. You would have had to take special vow to live in celibacy, even though we know that there were prophets and, of course, Jesus, who was celibate. But this is the culture. Marriage Uh, It was nearly insisted upon. It wasn't actually culturally acceptable to be celibate. Yet Jesus elevates celibacy. Why? He elevates celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. When you see that language, I want you to see self-denial for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So as we study celibacy today, that's what we're looking at. So what is celibacy? For those of you that don't know, celibacy is the state of abstaining from marriage and sexual relations And I just want to say this, like singleness and celibacy are not necessarily the same thing in our culture, right? We have singles who are sexually active, right, in our culture. But in Jesus' vision for the world, to be single was to be a celibate. In Jesus' kingdom ways, sex without marriage is forbidden. So Jesus' call to sing- singleness is a celibate singleness. Okay, so maybe you're thinking, hey, uh, Noel, what's the connection between Pride Month and Jesus teaching on marriage, divorce, and celibacy? Maybe by now you've guessed. I don't know exactly how well you're tracking with me, but I believe that what's at play here in this passage is the fact that following Jesus' design for the permanence and monogamy of marriage, is, it's really tough. And it requires self-denial. You do you will not help you have a good marriage. You do you will not lead you into Jesus' kingdom values for sexuality. And in verse 10 through 12, we gain some insight into what Jesus would say to this culture of ours that preaches freedom of individual expression and self-indulgence. So, Matthew chapter 19, 10 through 12, I, I've got some other uh, references in scripture. If you have your Bible, open it up and, and follow along with me. If you have a phone with the Bible on it, I give you permission. As long as I don't hear, na-na-na, na-na-na, nah, ESPN uh, tag music. As long as I don't hear that come up, silence your phone, Megan. All right, here we go. So I think in this passage, Jesus makes clear that there's, there's two options for sexuality, not l g b t q i a plus do you guys know what the plus stands for the plus stands for the idea that there's probably more how many in jesus ways two there's two options for sexuality you can have a lifetime monogamous which means one person for life marriage or you can have celibacy And and this is pretty radical. We have to look on this. Hey, if you're single here today, I would tell you you're not a second-class citizen. And why do I tell you that? Because I think Jesus would tell you that. If you're single here this morning, you have full access to the kingdom of heaven. That may not feel profound to us, but read it in its context. In a context where the Jewish culture almost mandated marriage, singleness was not highly looked upon. What's wrong with you? Can you support yourself? Can you even survive? And Jesus comes into this culture and he elevates celibacy or singleness. Now, um, some might say, celibacy, is that really even possible, Pastor Noel? That was a first right there. I don't think I've ever called myself Pastor Noel before. (laughs) But some might say, well, that's not very realistic. I know that I've got friends out there that would be like, man, come on, what are you talking about? I had a, a friend, we'll call him Jack, who announced to me uh, that he was gay and that he had been gay for a long time, that all his uh, urgings had been for, for men. And uh, he tried the Christian life, and he was uh, now ready to deny that life and come out of the closet, indulge in his feelings and, the, and his desires. And I asked him, I said, I get that you have these desires, but if you believe that Jesus' values, Jesus' kingdom ways, do not allow for homosexual behavior, would you consider celibacy? He laughed at me. Oh, there's no way I could do that. But this is the way our culture, I think a lot of our culture looks at celibacy this way. How could we ever not live according to our fleshly desires whenever we want The Met. And Jesus even says that not everyone can accept this word. This is his response, right? The disciples are like, man, if this is the case for marriage, if your bar for marriage is this high, that I've got to stay with one woman forever, and and I can't leave her for any reason, that I have to have only like a really good reason to leave. Who would even want to get married? That's what Jesus' disciples have just said. And so Jesus responds like, you're right. Not everyone can accept this, uh, this word. Only those to whom it has been given. It takes a gift to be married, and it takes a gift to be celibate. I think that's Jesus' teaching in this passage. It's both, who, no show of hands, but you can just in your heart respond. Who can agree that staying married takes a gift of the Spirit? And who can agree That staying single and living a celibate life could also take a gift of the Spirit. Either way, we need a gift. Which brings me to the next point. Notice, lest we overemphasize this celibate life, that that Jesus, he doesn't praise the disciples' astute revelation in verse 10. He doesn't say, yeah, you got it. Marriage stinks. You should be single like me. He could have said that if that's what he believed he could have said that has anyone heard a writer of scriptures say that singleness is better than marriage you can shake your head yes because the apostle paul said that the apostle paul said i wish you would all be single like i am jesus didn't say that He, he doesn't praise the disciples for recognizing that marriage is really hard and that it might be better to be single Rather, he says that both options, the ability to honor marriage vows or the ability to live a celibate life, require gifts, require supernatural enabling. Here's a key reminder because some of us are thinking maybe today, just like my friend Jack was thinking, like, how could I ever live a celibate life? I know that that's what God teaches me. I know that homosexuality is outside of what he's taught me, yet I have these desires, and how could I ever live? without quenching these desires. And Jesus says it takes a gift to live according to his kingdom ways. Remember this, that God equips or gifts the called. He does not always call the equipped or gifted. Do you see what I'm saying? If God, what did Moses say when Moses was called by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? His first response is like, I can't be the guy because I stutter." I don't speak very well. God comes along and says, I'll give you what you need to do what I've called you to do. This is the gift of God. God equips those who he calls. And so if the call on your life is marriage or if the call on your life is celibacy, I believe that there's a gift from the Father to help you, to equip you to do what he's asked you to do. This brings me to the third point, which is the practice of self-denial. See, what I believe Jesus is doing here, he's elevating the life of self-denial that's needed to live in marriage or celibacy. Whether it's, whether it's celibacy before marriage, some of you teenagers right now are looking at me, and, and I'm telling you that you're going you're to have to have some self-denial in, to, in order to live according to God's kingdom values. You're going to have to deny Desires that feel really close to your heart, you're going to feel really strongly at certain points. Some of you are in between marriages right now, And, and I'm just encouraging you that the call of God is to live celibately, unless we're in a marriage to a male or a female, a heterosexual marriage. Some of some of us, some of you, might even be called to a lifetime of self denial. Again, it could be in marriage. Or it could be uh, in single life. Jesus says in verse 12 that there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. See, in a world that says you can choose your gender, you can choose your sexual preference, the Bible says we were created male and female. Remember, when the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus into this discussion on lawful divorce, where did Jesus take them? Right back to the creation account. Jesus said, this is how it was designed. Even divorce, while it is allowable in some situations, is a concession for our sin and our hard-heartedness. The design, God's design was one male, one female, together for eternity God's good design is that if you want to have sex, then his design for you is marriage. But if you can't handle his high standard for marriage, if you can't uh, handle a life of marital fidelity and working things out, you do have another option, and that's celibacy. He concludes this passage by saying what he said at the start. The one who can accept this should accept it. Remember, either way, to live a faithfully married life or to live a life of faithful celibacy requires a gift from God. So what does this all have to do with Pride Month? Again, what about LGBTQ? So we believe that the Bible teaches not only God's good design for marriage, but, but we believe that it also specifically addresses the issue of homosexuality. And I know that for some, like I literally do not know where everyone is at this morning. I assume that there's a good chance that some have uh, dealt with the challenge of same-sex attraction in this room. It's highly possible that some in this room have dealt with maybe even gender confusion. It's possible, very likely in this room, that many of us or some of us have people close to us, loved ones, who are battling with uh, a homosexual lifestyle. I don't know where everybody is at. I I do know that that in our Bible Beltish culture, there's probably not many of you who are going to throw tomatoes at me this morning for standing up for uh, a conservative view, uh, what I believe is a biblical view on sexuality. But but here's what I want to say. I want to say that the Bible does address the issue of homosexuality, and I believe that it's important to follow Scripture even if it doesn't feel right, even when it doesn't feel fair, We've got to dive in and submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture. Why? Because God's design for us is good. I believe the hateful thing to do would be to say nothing. Would it give you the choice to just follow the waves of culture? I believe that the loving thing to do is to point you to God's word. And I hope this morning that I can do so with a loving tone, with an understanding tone. I don't want to be hateful. I don't feel like I'm a bigot for believing God's word. But I could see how if you're wrestling with this really in your life, you know, it would be hard to receive maybe God's good word, especially when it's calling you to self-denial. So maybe some of you guys are familiar. Some of these passages are are, um, being referred to now as the clobber passages because they're the passages that Christians use to clobber homosexuals over their head. I think that's a bad way to look at these passages. We shouldn't be a people who clobber people. If we're, if we're beating people with the Bible, I think we're doing it wrong. Do you get what I'm saying? God's good uh, word is, is love. We should figure out as best we can how to do that in love. We want to speak the truth at all times, that we want to speak it in love. Before I start talking about this issue, I wanted to show you this book. I also read this book. Um, this is called People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue. It's a people that's really important for us to understand that we're talking about real people here who God loves, who I believe we should love, even when we can't understand the lifestyle choices. So this is by Preston Sprinkle. He's got a great po- podcast. Preston is kind of considered the evangelical authority, I would say, on homosexuality right now. So I'm drawing from these two books quite a bit. And, of course, the good book, as you know. So Romans one eighteen through 32 has something to say about... Homosexuality, but I also want you to understand and pay attention to there's a type of sexual deviation that's also mentioned in this passage. You know, sometimes as Christians, we like, uh, and I think the church has faulted in this way where we, we kind of have been a bit bigoted at times because maybe we don't understand how anyone could be homosexual or, or we've like felt such a need to be bold and protective that we've been like harsh and mean, and we've actually ignored our own sin in order, to, in order to point out the sin of others. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I know that me personally, I can be, I'm really good at noticing other people's sin and really bad at noticing my own sin. And I think that when we come to scripture, can we just do that? Can we be a church that pays close attention, that at least works really hard to notice our own sin? Because uh, you're gonna see some, some sins listed. And I guarantee you, You got a sin in your heart that's on the list. So here we go, Romans 1, 18 through 32. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity For their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Hear me, kids. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Has everyone found themselves on this list up to this point. It says in verse 32 that although they know God's righteous decree, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So the point... I want you to hear in this passage is that, yes, homosexuality is outside of God's good design for us. We should stand up for this, uh, this belief. We should stand up for God's design for sexuality. But also on the list are a lot of other things that you and I do every day. This isn't a them problem. Sin. This is an us problem. Sin. If we're going to be a faithful church, if we're going to reach people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus, we have to point the finger at ourselves, lest we become hypocritical. If you want to go Old Testament, we could look at Leviticus 18. Now, Leviticus 18, also Leviticus 20, this is crazy. If you read this passage, it's super crazy. They list like every perverted way that you could have sexual relations. You know, it's like, don't have sex with your sister, don't have sex with your father's mother, or whatever. It's like, geez, people were really doing that? Yes. Yes. Like Paul said, they were inventing ways of doing evil. There's this long list of all these different ways that you can fall off the horse and live outside of God's good design for sexuality. It also says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Here's what I'm trying to say again. Homosexuality is not the only way to live outside God's good design for our sexuality. When we're pointing our finger at those around us, we've got to make sure that we've done the hard work of, of looking inside. I've seen the stats on pornography. I've seen the stats on sex before marriage. Unfortunately, they're, th- they're not that much better, if better at all, within the church than they are outside the church. We've got our own problem with sexuality. We can't be the kind of people who are looking at them all the time and never looking within 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who wants to inherit the kingdom of God? That's why you're here, isn't it? He goes on to say, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God of God. Once again, is homosexuality listed on that, in that passage? Yes, it is. Are there a whole bunch of other ways to fall off the horse listed in that passage? Yes, there are. Have you committed some of them? Yes, you have. Yes, I have. You get where I'm going with this. We're going to stand up for God's good design, but we're not going to just take one issue. God's design for marriage was that it be sexual union, male and female. We believe that we see that we were created with gender. Gender is not just a social construct, you guys. In the beginning, God created them, male and female. Again, this, this seems like obvious, maybe. In this room, it might seem obvious. Parents, I'm telling you, to, to the generation that, of these kids right here, their generation does not take these things to be so obvious. Why, why do I know that's true? Because I teach middle school. <laughs> but I'm just telling you, I'm warning you, the generation, these kids are growing up in a world that does not assume the things that we assumed. So we, I think this is important. This is why I wanted to, why would I stop on three verses? I could have just moved on to the next passage in Matthew. But it's June, and we had the chance, I think this is like the cultural issue right now. And I want to make sure that we're equipped to live within God's good design. Gender is part of creation. It's part of the created order. You don't just get to choose your gender. Male and female, he created them. Also, part of the created order, marriage and sex go together. I know I took a little bit of heat because I was talking about what Jesus taught about marriage. I may have focused a little bit on sex. Sorry if that offended you. But I think that sex and marriage go together. These two things are united. This is like the magic pixie dust that creates intimacy in a relationship. If you take sex and you put it outside of marriage, you've screwed everything up. Things will not go well if that's how we're going to do it. So sex was designed for marriage only. So we've got gender. We've got heterosexual union within marriage. This is God's good design. I'm here to tell you, there is no such thing as male-male marriage. There is no such thing as female-to-female marriage. No such thing. You've invented something completely different. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when we actually were able to debate that. Did you know it was only 2015 that gay marriage, like, really won a Supreme Court case? It's been eight years, and look where we're at. And this speaks to the progressive nature of sin. When you let sin take hold, it runs rampant. Sin does not stop. Satan will not stop until total destruction has come. Sin is almost always progressive in nature. So the Bible teaches that any sex outside of marriage is sin. And you can only have marriage when you have a male and a female. So heterosexual sex, that's a long word. This is Guy-girl sex before marriage, outside of God's design. Whether it's a one-night stand, whether you're engaged, whether you've been living together for eight months, sex outside of marriage, even male-female sex outside of marriage, is sin. This means that heterosexual sex with someone other than your spouse is sin. This means that lust of the heart. We covered this like a year ago. Lust of the heart. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if you think about another woman lustfully in your heart, you've committed the act of adultery. This includes pornography, it includes fantasizing, it includes coveting another person. There's all kinds of ways to fall off the horse sexually. And some of us are guilty. I know some of us have been guilty. God's design was for sex to be the bonding agent that gives intimacy to a marriage. Sex is not designed purely for our indulgence. Sex was not designed so that your desires would be met. This is why this name of this group, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, it's so ridiculous. This was not God's good design for sexuality. But we have a problem, you guys, as Christians, when we make our feelings about LGBTQ bigger than the issues in our own life that need to be dealt with. I'm sure most of you would stand up right now. Let's just take you men. I could stand you all up. You'd all agree with me. Homosexuality, outside God's good design. Yet you go home this week and you look at pornography you're going you're going to pay special attention to the cheerleaders on the sideline or the swimsuit edition that's out you know what i'm saying if you feel convicted i think join the club when we're more concerned about denouncing homosexual behavior than we're concerned about waging war against our own lustful thoughts our own promiscuity we got a real big problem neither way to fall off the horse is leading towards human flourishing all sex outside of God's design leads to destruction look this is why it's loving to preach about this this morning if you don't wage war against immorality you're headed towards destruction all right you've heard some caveats probably to these arguments but what about if I was born this way what if I was born I was born the first person I was ever attracted to was same-sex. Here's what I would say to that. We've all been born with the proclivity to sin, have we not? Isn't this a fundamental belief of the Christian faith? Like the doctrine of original sin is like foundational. We believe that we're all sinners because that's what the Bible tells us. We've all been born with a sin nature. The choice we have is to submit that nature to God's kingdom ways or to indulge ourselves in our own sin. We've all been born with a sin nature. So I don't think being born that way is an argument that really holds up. How about others who've experienced trauma? And this is painful. I've been I've had the privilege to sit and spend some time with men in bondage to sexual addiction, men who are in bondage to sexual addiction. And I can tell you, time after time, in their testimonies, they've got a story of someone who touched them inappropriately at a young age. Someone they trusted who violated them someone who showed them things that they shouldn't have been shown at an age they were way too young, an age of innocence. You get what I'm saying? The the reality of trauma is real. And Jesus addressed this. If the eunuchs Jesus is talking about could be a concept applied to anyone with a disordered sexuality, I think we can safely say that some eunuchs have been made that way by man. We have people living in our world who have disordered sexual desires because of trauma that's happened to them. This is a real thing. These are people that we need to shepherd. These are people that we need to lovingly bring back into the fold. The last part of this verse, actually, I guess I I really love the way Jesus says this last bit. He says, and then there are eunuchs that have chosen that way for the sake of the kingdom. You know, traditionally, the church has taken this to mean, this is why Catholic priests don't marry. Because for the sake of the kingdom, they've chosen celibacy. I'm here to tell you that any time you choose to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to live according to God's kingdom ways, you have done so for the sake of the kingdom. We have to be willing to deny ourselves. We have to expect that we would have to deny our sinful nature in order to have all that God has for us. And I know that there's temptations like, I mean, I, I was thinking about, like, like, saying out loud some of the things that I'm tempted to do, and then I thought, that's probably a bad idea. I won't, I won't say those things out loud, at least not in a, a room this big, but I do confess temptations to brothers in an appropriate setting because I'm tempted to sin. I am tempted to do things that are outside God's good design. Hand in the air, okay? Could, would you raise your hand if you're also tempted? I'm feeling really lonely right now. You get what I'm saying? Sexual or not, we're, are we all not tempted? We are tempted. You know who else was tempted? Jesus. 40 days in the wilderness. You remember the story? Again, we covered this about 14 months ago. Jesus in the wilderness, he's tempted by Satan with all kinds of different temptations. So temptation is not a sin. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you have to give in. You can resist temptation, just like Jesus did. I also want to say that there's a big difference between temptation to sin, resisting sin through repentance, like telling somebody when you screwed up, admitting it, not living in the dark, and then just giving yourself over to sin. There's a difference. Being tempted, struggling, like legitimately struggling with sin, which means you're repenting, you're confessing every time you do it, There's a difference between those two things and just giving yourself over. And this is the problem with the identity culture that we're living in. Imagine if I introduced myself. Hi, I'm I'm a liar. Like, do I lie? I I do lie sometimes. I'm actually trying to get better at that. Uh, I do lie sometimes. But I would never introduce myself as a liar. I wouldn't let that be my identity. I'm a child of God, for goodness sake. But with, this, with the culture that we're living in, with, with the LGBTQ plus culture that we're living in, there's this identifying with something that's sinful outside of God's good design. So it does like up it a little bit, doesn't it? There doesn't appear to be much resistance to the flesh in that sort of identity mindset. So being tempted is not sinful And then it's a whole different thing together to resist sin through repentance. But we oughtn't give ourselves over completely to our desires. One thing I want to say about uh, temptation is that temptation almost always comes in the form of a lie. We talked about these little half-truths that Satan uses to get us right where he wants us. Do you remember back in the fall of mankind, Genesis 3, this is exactly Satan's tactic? What did Satan say to Eve? Eve. Did God really say that you weren't supposed to eat from the fruit? Did he really say that? Are you sure that he said that? God doesn't condemn homosexuality. Are you sure? But if you translate the original Greek this way or that way, you see what I'm saying? This is the way that we twist the truth. Just like Satan does. Did God really say? And then Eve's like, yeah, he said we'd die if we ate that fruit. And Satan was like, You will not surely die. Lies, lies, lies. This is the way temptation works. Temptation tells you if you give in, you will see yourself fully expressed. This is the ultimate deception of the evil one that your salvation would come from you just giving in to all your desires, that you'd be completely fulfilled. Paul says it this way, uh, Paul, Paul says that, uh, this is Romans 125, Paul says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. When we exchange the truth about God for lies, we're actually, we're actually worshipping created things. We're worshipping our feelings, we're, we're worshipping sexual desire, sexual pleasure, whatever it is, when we Exchange the truth about God for a lie. We're we're giving our worship to that thing instead of to the thing to the one who created it. That's powerful. Have you ever thought about giving into your desires as idolatry? As we close this morning, um, I just want to call you briefly to three ways of being in this whole cultural moment. It's my conviction that how we respond to this moment is as important. As what we believe or why we believe it. We've got to be a people who, who use love in expressing these beliefs. So I want to give you three things as we uh, prepare to receive the Lord's Supper today. The first thing is I think we have to be bold as a church when it comes to these issues. I was thinking, you know, it does not take a lot of courage for me to stand up here and proclaim these truths to you. I mean, your butts are in a seat on a Sunday morning. You guys probably believe the things that I'm telling you this morning, but I still think that we need boldness in proclaiming these truths because outside these walls, there is a war being waged on these values that we just assume. So I think that we do need to have boldness. Romans 12 says, look, and this would be my charge to you, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the boldness that we need. In 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, he says it this way, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. We've got to take this seriously. I think that there's a boldness that we're going to need. But in our boldness, I mean, how many of us have seen boldness go the wrong direction? And there, there can be a boldness that's prevalent. If we're honest, in Christian circles, that doesn't feel very loving feel super condemning, super judgy. You know what I'm talking about, right? Could we be bold and loving? Could we be bold and loving? Look, hey, uh, you've heard this language before. Are you an affirming church? Are you an affirming church? (laughs) I'm here to say, yeah, we're an affirming church. We affirm that all sinners are in desperate need of a Savior. Sinners like me, Sinners like you, we're all in the same boat. Beggars before the cross of Jesus. I affirm that. We affirm that there's not one of us who's righteous in God's sight. I can affirm that. We affirm that the wages of our sin is death. Destruction. Not indulgence. Destruction. Not fulfillment. Destruction. I affirm that. The wages of our sin is death. Death. If left to our own devices, we'd destroy ourselves and God's good design. I also affirm the intrinsic value and the image-bearing character of every single human being. Regardless of gender identity, sexual orientation, people matter. Yes, we're we're sinful by nature, but we're image-bearers. We have intrinsic value because God gives us value. We're not worthless or insignificant. People matter. At Exeter Valley Church, people of any persuasion matter. And we're called to love those who are struggling, either because of their own fleshly nature or because of trauma they've endured. For God so loved the world. Love was the motivation for Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for us. It was the love of God that motivated the death of Jesus. So how's it going to be with outsiders? We're going to lead with grace. We're going to lead with invitation. We're going to lead with welcome. We're not going to be caught lambasting, lambasting, however you say that word, Non-believers, because they don't act like believers. Why would we expect non-believers to act like believers? We're going to treat them like Jesus did, the woman at the well. You remember that story? The woman caught in adultery, he reads her mail. He's like, I know everything you've ever done. And then he forgives her, and he says, go and sin no more. And she walks away. If you've seen The Chosen, this is like one of my favorite scenes. She runs back to the town and she's like, I just met a man who told me all my sin and still loved me. This is how we're going to treat outsiders at Exeter Valley Church. Look, it's got to be okay to not be okay. It's got to be okay to show up here and not be okay. We shouldn't expect non believers to act like believers. So as people come in, it's okay to not be okay, but what's also not okay is staying that way. When you encounter Jesus, your life changes. You're born again. You have new life after you've met Jesus. So we should expect that insiders know and expect to be discipled into God's kingdom ways. So the way we respond to outsiders is grace, it's invitation, it's welcome. But we just spent a whole chapter in Matthew 18 about how we confront in love believers in our body who are walking in sin. The last thing is we're going to be humble. I thought it's, it's interesting that it's called Pride Month. It's like they, they took the rainbow and they called it Pride Month. Pride is an apt name, probably, because when you decide that your way of living is better than God's way of living, that is a perfect picture of pride. We've got to be the opposite of that. We should be humble. Why? Because our Savior was humble. We should know better than anyone that our ways are not the best ways. When we say, hey, I know what's best, who is God in that picture? Me, we make ourselves God when we say that I know what's best. So I think Pride Month is, is aptly named. I think it, it actually reveals the root of the problem. Pride is at the root of the problem. Our problem ain't sexual preference, our problem is spiritual pride. And God opposes the proud but gives strength to the humble. And lastly, we who partake in the blood. And the body of Jesus, we of all people should remember our need, our desperation. We of all people should have the humility that Jesus had, knowing that we're all guilty. We all share that. I don't know what your sins are. I don't know what your areas of struggle are. But I know the one thing we all share. We're all in desperate need of a Savior. And so we come every Sunday morning with humility to these elements, to remember what Jesus has done for us. He who knew no sin took on sin so that we might achieve the righteousness of God. The truest thing about us this morning, you guys, is that we're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. The late Tim Keller was known to say that while we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, we're also More loved than we could ever hope. This is what we gather to celebrate. We don't gather to celebrate every Sunday morning that we climbed the mountain and accomplished it. We come together every Sunday morning to celebrate that even though we didn't, we know the one who did. And we have access to the righteousness of God through the life of Jesus. This is what it's all about. How could we not walk out of here with humility? How could we be proud? as if we've achieved what needed to be achieved. We come to this table with humility. It's about what he's done, not about what we could or could not do. The fact of the matter is Jesus came because he loves sinners, and he's made a way for them to not stay in their sinfulness, but to be resurrected into new life. The price has been paid. Our sin is washed away, and we can live in a new way because of that. Let's pray. Hey, we're so glad you joined us, but don't forget to stay connected either through our website, our social media, or the Church Center app. Or you know what? Better yet, come join us in person on a Sunday morning. See you soon.